I think the main thing I would say is start out with the assumption that this child is doing the best they can. And if the best that, that they can do right now isn't good enough, then think about what we can change about what's going on around them so that they can do better. And just kind of starting with that baseline assumption that this child is doing the best that they can right now is, is probably the main take-home message that I would give. Welcome to the Rooted in Relationships podcast, where we talk with renowned researchers and experts about the scientific insights that can help you build meaningful relationships with young people. I'm Ben Holberg, your host and CEO and president of Search Institute, where our own research over the past 60 years has found relationships to be the roots that all young people need to grow and thrive. I'm excited to have our guest today, Dr. Krista Mahari. Dr. Mahari is a clinical psychologist and assistant professor of psychology at the University of South Alabama. Her research focuses on promoting positive youth development and understanding the contextual risk factors that have an impact on children and adolescent development. Dr. Mahari's research approach centers on the community and youth's voice so that interventions are culturally appropriate, effective, and sustainable. In this episode, she'll share many practical insights to working with youth and communities, but she also shares a wonderful project where she allows the young people to define what character means for their community. You won't want to miss it. What a great opportunity today to have Krista Mahari with us. I'm really excited to talk to you, Krista. Thank you so much for your time. And I know how busy you are. You have a lot on your plate, but thank you for being here. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to have this conversation with you. Yeah, Krista, I mean, I was interested in a lot of aspects of your work, and we'll talk a little bit about that work later. But your background of coming and looking at research and thinking about research from a clinician standpoint is interesting, too, as a clinical psychologist who's licensed and working with people, and then also as someone who wants to understand how to work with communities to improve, understand the research, but then in ways that improve the community that you work. And I'm curious about your journey there, your story of what brought you to this point to really want to work with people, both in a clinical uh, uh, setting, but also in research. So take us back a little bit to your growing up, if you would like, into kind of why you study what you do now. That's a great question. And I think that there are always probably thousands of factors that steer people one way or the other. I can think of in high school, two particular examples, since we're going back. One was a pro- like a, a not particularly significant event, but a representative of series of events over time, where I remember being in a class, and a classmate of mine was acting in a way that one of the teachers interpreted as defiant. And I remember thinking that it was over something really dumb, like, shoot, she didn't take her hoodie off her head when he asked her to. And so he eventually uh, kicked her out of the classroom. And she was already doing poorly in that class. And I remember feeling angry with him that he was doing that to her and thinking that it was kind of counter to what his job was, which was to promote her access to her education. And so I I started thinking about how to help youth better adapt. I didn't think of it in these words, obviously, then, but what we can do to make it so that people, teenagers, people my age at the time were okay in the places that they were in and could keep engaging in adaptive ways in the situations that they were, and later started thinking more about, and what can we do to help teachers interact with youth in a way that also helps to promote their well-being. And then there was a another incident in high school. I grew up in a neighborhood that had its own fair share of violence, and there was this time where I I went out on my porch because there's a lot of noise and there was a huge fight that was happening at the corner of the block. It was like maybe 20 people or something and it was it was physical like nobody had a gun out or anything at that point that I saw and somebody must have called the 
cops because a police car rolled up and all the people who had been fighting each other kind of turned and started hitting the police car to get the police car out of the neighborhood and then remembered also thinking at this point this is crazy like I had that same fear response to police not I'm not judging the people in my neighborhood but that theoretically it was the police's job to keep the peace. And nobody trusted that that's what they were there for and that that's what they would do. And again, these I think were seeds of my interest. I did not think of it in wise ways at the time. But remembering, thinking this is crazy and this isn't how things should be. And then through that kind of thinking of what what can we do to help reduce aggression in individuals? What can we do to help reduce violence in our communities? I did take a clinical path through that. And I think working with people one-on-one felt like it was the same story happening over and over and over again. Lots of exposure to violence resulting in lots of traumatic stress and thinking of how can we how can we stop this from happening in the first place? What can we do to make that happen? Yeah, so that that Whatever that was, something within you of sense of injustice, feeling that sense of injustice, even as a high school student, and and then seeing things within your neighborhood of, of some of those challenges, who in your life during that time helped champion that spark uh, around that feeling, that feeling of like, this isn't right, I want to understand it more, and I want to impact the world. What is some of the relationships in your life that helped you kind of work through that? That, that is a great question. So I remember a friend's mom was a clinical social worker, and she talked about things in a way that I didn't hear other people talk about. She talked about youth and adaptive behavior and helping people engage in more adaptive behavior. And I loved the way that that was so non-judgmental and so kind towards the people who weren't necessarily engaging in adaptive behavior at the time. And that I that was really formative for me. There was also a professor I had in college who, she was my first Black female teacher I've ever had, and I stalked her a little bit, I think. She she talked a lot about, in, like, making impact at a larger scale. So instead, thinking beyond just working with individuals, but thinking of what, what can you do that that creates even larger ripple effects and and thinking helping me to think through what that could look like what it would look like to maximize the impact of the work that I'm doing that's so interesting too this i think often about that idea that often behavior without context doesn't will often not make sense or will give simple answers to a behavior but once you understand the context you realize that uh, some of the behavior is adaptive, even if it goes against the norm of like the, the student maybe in the classroom or, or other things. And I, I know your work has centered on that, that aspect of thinking about the community and how to make those, those deep changes. As a practitioner, you know, I think one of the challenges practitioners often have, whether it's teachers or practitioners, is how do you change the system or the context? Or uh, when I'm working with a, a kid who is displaying behaviors that that may seem, or even uh, we know that that as a white male, I would interpret behavior from students of colors probably in a different way, just from a bias, even if I was trying not to show bias. But what are some ways you think from your work that teachers and practitioners can do a better job thinking about that system and understanding behavior in context? I think the first thing I want to say in response to that is that it is hard and it is overwhelming. And I think it's even hard to give a, a quick response to that, except empathy. I know for me, in terms of developmental relationships, it's been really important for me to have people who I work with who have been working longer than me. And to one, one thing that has come up as we've been doing interviews with community stakeholders has been how we can foster hope in youth. And I feel like that has been paralleled in how I feel like people who have who have come before can foster hope in me. And so so one thing one person said is how 
we hold on to the hope for our youth when they can't hold on to the hope for themselves. And I feel like working with people who come ahead and sometimes working with people who are younger helps to hold the hope when I can't hold on to it. And so I I think it is it is hard and to to dismiss that would be unhelpful for us. It helps me to think of people coming before. It helps me to think of people alongside and that together we're part of a a community of people who are working to promote the well-being of, of youth and youth as they grow. And that that's part of what fosters hope also. So that is the long answer before the answer to your question, which I think was around what can we do to change the culture, to change the climate, and to change the context of relationships. Yeah. But yeah, but I want to, I love that idea because, and I think it's really important is kind of what, what I take from that is you're not alone, right? Is as we're working on understanding how do we really impact youth and kids is, is we don't want to create us as the only source of support in their lives, but instead think about how do we engage a community around this, this kid that is a safety net in a way that others can offer things that maybe I can't offer. And, and I think that is, that does produce hope because it's a lot, it's a lot less daunting when you say, well, I'm not in this on my own. We're in this together, you know? And so I I love that idea. So sorry, sorry to interrupt. Keep going. That is the main thing for me is just recognizing that we're part of a community of people and over time as well as right now. And I think, yes, that makes me happier. It feels more relieved that in any one of our interactions with youth is a moment in time of their lives and just one moment in time of their story that's being shaped by many, many moments in time with many, many other people and recognizing that we can do the best we can in the moment we're in, and that's all that we can do. And I think related to changing the culture and climate, the biggest thing is time in, in terms of having patience about how long time will, change will take. The Some research that I've read and research in intervention research that I have been affiliated with shows that some of the real impacts in terms of youth's aggressive behavior doesn't really change until an intervention has been in place for about three years, which again points to the fact that we're not really trying to change individual behavior. We're trying to change a culture that makes some behaviors more or less adaptive. And so having the patience to recognize that Interventions take time. I think one problem with that is that a lot of funding mechanisms, they last three years, for example. So you're hoping to show that something changes based on six months of intervention. And then a lot of times the funding to keep those resources in place goes away. And if it's in a school or another site and they don't have the continued resources to sustain it, then we're, we're never really fully able to evaluate that what the impact could look like of a program over time. I think recognizing that it takes time and having the resources in place for, uh, to be able to examine a sustained effect is really important. And I think that another thing to think about, so most of my research has been school-based, and another thing to think about is the impact of friends on behavior. And it's really interesting. What we found is that friends' pro-social behavior and friends' problem behavior both uniquely impact adolescents' behaviors. So we can't just work to improve pro-social behavior and expect that aggression, delinquency, or substance use will go away. You might just get children who are using substances and stealing and fighting each other who are also being really kind and helpful right. to each other. Right, 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 yeah. So making sure that we have interventions that both work to change uh, pro-social behavior and aggressive ag- aggressive or other problematic behaviors at the same time in, in within an individual child and within the larger peer context, and then making sure that teachers teachers are able to be kind and supportive to youth at the same time, recognizing that teacher-student behavior uh, really impacts youth's own behavior as well. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, there's two points that I would love to hear you elaborate more on. And one is, my first thought is, like, if we think about a three-year process for impact, I wonder how many really promising interventions 
we never really get to see live out because maybe we we didn't let them come to fruition. And I think that's an interesting, that's interesting. What are the makings? So it, so kind of a three-year intervention to really see the impact. Are there other things within in, inter- interventions that make them particularly impactful for, for kids when we're talking about reducing more of these antisocial types of behaviors for, and then being pro-sociality? Yeah, I think... The one thing is having multi-level interventions, having interventions that both equip youth with the skills that they might not have at the individual level. So social emotional learning factors like anger management, social problem solving, empathy and perspective taking, as well as trying to change uh, classroom climate, classroom behaviors where behaviors that are desired are being reinforced by teachers, and then having school-level climate and policies where, um, again, the emphasis is on what the the desired behavior is and making sure that the desired behavior is reinforced as opposed to having a punitive approach to undesired behaviors without clearly defined desired behaviors. And then having some kind of parent component to that, which honestly in many cases is letters home to parents with intermittent parent workshop days, but having some kind of parent component where parents are looped in on that conversation is helpful too. And then in terms of overall, when you're implementing high quality implementation usually includes high levels of administrative support of the programming. So programs get implemented better when the administration is behind it. Uh, Social emotional learning programs, so those programs that are targeted towards improving individual youth skills, uh, work better when the teacher is enthusiastic about it, when the youth are engaged and responsive during those sessions, and when there is a pretty high dosage. So when they're getting about 80% of the program material over time. So I think those are the main factors that have been associated with better outcomes for youth. Yeah, and I love this idea of the multi-level intervention, right? Because it, it starts to say, like, just like all of our lives are shaped deeply by our experiences across multiple systems and relationships. And, and, and we bring that to the, we bring that to the table. The, the youth we work with, they come with all of that experience and things that have shaped them. And what Ann Mastin talks about is that resilience really is across multiple systems and it's not an individual uh, kind of effort. And so then the question comes is who's responsible for uh, youth resilience? Right. It's it's if it's not that individually they're responsible, we as, you know, caring adults and people around them and fostering environments for youth lead to resilience. And I think that your work really displays how the community can really impact youth. And of course, youth have their own their own autonomy for for change too. talk about that interaction between kind of that individual approach of change and growth and overcoming obstacles for resilience And then also maybe the community responsibility for that. I think that is true. And one researcher, uh, Spencer, who I really like, talks about net protective factors and, and net vulnerabilities. And so thinking of nothing really being deterministic, but that there it's this really complex interaction between individual level vulnerabilities and resources and contextual vulnerabilities and resources that predict how an individual child is going to do. So that some, some children, we always have those stories of, well, this particular child grew up with all this trauma and all this abuse in this really um, under-resourced neighborhood and this failing school, but they did amazingly well. So you can do amazingly well too. And we do, I think as Americans, really love this idea of grit and pulling yourselves up by your bootstraps and you can make, you can do anything, you can make anything happen. And I, I'm not arguing that that's not true, but I think sometimes we really ignore potentially the host of other things that this child 
who's, who, who made it, who succeeded, who was okay, had going for them that maybe another child didn't have going for them. And it sometimes can promote this almost blaming mentality for the children who are struggling. And so there are some children who, uh, one, one, gen- one developmental psychology professor I had put it, win the genetic lottery. <laughs> and they have so many things going for them that they have a lot of internal resources that, that help them to do okay, even under a lot of stress. And there are some children who did not win the genetic lottery and who are need more external support than what they're getting. And so I think usually it's, it's best to think of all children as potentially fragile and as, as people who need supports and structures and scaffolding in place so that they can grow well. And I think ideally we're creating interventions that are uh, multi-systemic so that we can take advantage of the strengths that a child has in any particular area internally or externally and build off those things to make it more likely that they'll have the net resources that they need to to thrive. So so maybe if one child gets all these anger management skills and is able to implement them and everything else is pretty okay, they'll be okay. But some children that that's not sufficient for them and that's why we put all of these systems in place. I love that idea and I want to talk a little bit about maybe move into a little bit about this the idea of being trauma-informed because I think assuming kind of some fragility or that all kids need some you know extra support uh, is is a really important point but before we go there I think I would love to hear a little bit more about if I'm a if I'm just thinking if I'm a practitioner I'm a teacher and I'm listening and I hear you talk about intervention I might say oh well that that's all that's all good that but that's intervention for professional psychologists or or school counselors. Talk a little bit about that day, those day to day interactions with with teachers and friends, and and some of those multi levels that that I know you've worked on and you've researched. That thank you for clarifying that. I do think when I say intervention, I think any moment in time where I'm doing something that has the goal of changing how somebody's feeling or acting or thinking. And so I think teachers are an intervention in, in, by their existence. And I think so, there are so many things that have been shown to help really simple behaviors that teachers can do. For example, greeting a child by name when they enter the classroom reduces the rates of problem behaviors in a classroom. Being kind, being responsive, calling on students, thanking them when they respond, thanking them for complying with requests or praising them for adhering to classroom rules. All of those things are are almost intervention behaviors that teachers can do that have been shown to create a positive classroom climate and reduce problem behaviors in the classroom. Uh, and, and the same thing, uh, friendship is an intervention almost in the sense that um, it, it creates a really good buffering effect for, for youth who are experiencing victimization or other stressful things. And of course, we have so much research on just positive relationships with adults outside of the home and how much that protects youth from a lot of undesired outcomes. And, and, and so, yes, I think I was being really scientific in how I was talking about things, but a lot of this is consistency and kindness and letting the child know that they're seen and heard and cared about and that they're important. And don't you think, Krista, ultimately, like, that's exactly what all of us want. Like, it's not that hard to imagine, right, that a kid walks in to be seen beyond just his behavior. I think of the young, the girl in your classroom that had the hood up and that you told in the beginning of your story. What would it have been like for that teacher to approach that student in a kind way, in a way that is, is I see you, I, I hear you. You know, I think that sometimes we underestimate the power of those kind of things. I think we definitely do. This is not scientific, but it is something that has really shaped my life. My dad, when he was growing up, um, he grew up in Ethiopia, and 
he often described his relationship with his dad as more of a boss employee relationship than a than a, a father son relationship and and he is he is the best father <laughs> he's always made us feel like we were the center of the universe and and one time i asked him like how did you get to be such a good father if you never had that modeled for you and he said he remembered there was one of his dad's business partners whenever he was in the house would ask him how he was doing and talk to him and he said he felt like he was important and when he like grew up he always wanted to make sure that the children who he interacted with felt like they were important too. And I, I do think that as a, as children and as adults, it's something that's, we, we need to know that we matter, that we belong and that it's, it's a lifelong need. Yeah. What a, what a beautiful story. And what a hopeful story too, is that again, getting back to that idea that even when youth experience really difficult circumstances and challenges and they're real, and we know that, and we know that, that, that and some of your background and research has shown that those adverse circumstances, the ACEs, you know, that they do get under the skin and they impact us. But the idea that relational uh, wounds require relational healing and, and that that healing can come, you know, in a community of people in a way that provides hope. So hope when when a student walks into your classroom and may may not uh, may be disruptive or may push you away. But that constant kindness of greeting them and saying, no, it does your behavior it's I'm not justifying the behavior, but you matter. I, I see you. I care about you. Just that experience. And, and you know, it's really kind of cool to see how that your, your own personal experience allowed you to be in the classroom to say, no, something's not right about that interaction. And, and now kind of having this uh, purpose to, to help young kids matter. And, and even the approach you take to research is very much about the community voice and getting input from the community and understanding. And so I really think that's important for our, for our listeners to hear is like, if we can't do anything else, just, just validating that young people matter, that you matter. And, and I see you and I know you, and I know, you, I know what you're, what that you're, you have potential. Yes. When I think about, for me, the times that I, I've personally had those moments of like reassurance or moments of change and how I'm approaching my life or and how I'm doing things. It's always, it's all, it's always healing. Even if you haven't had like a huge body of trauma, it's always healing to feel like you're a person who matters and that your voice matters and that you're heard. And I, I appreciate the connection that you've drawn with, um, the participatory action research that we do and recognizing that like so sometimes what we're doing is planting seeds or giving these moments in time and we don't always necessarily know what the outcomes are going to be but that we hope to create a a healing experience potentially in those moments so with my youth advisory board which is mostly uh 10 to 13 year olds we meet once a month and we've met once a month for almost two years now and I think just last month did I feel like we had this breakthrough where we were really connected and on the same page and that they trusted that what I was moving towards was something that was elevating them and it, so I felt really excited about that and also just kind of for all of us to know, I think sometimes as adults, we want the reinforcement from youth right away. And sometimes what we get from youth is a year of being pushed away before they, before they know that we're trustworthy and that we'll be there and that we're going to be consistent. And so having that recognition that we 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 have to we are in control of our own behavior and we can show kindness and care and respect that does not mean that we should be immediately expecting a lot of positive things back right yeah that i i there's a a friend of mine who's who he's a marriage and family therapist but uh it's from uh, comes from restoration therapy that he says that all children have an innate need for love and trustworthiness. And, and love answers the question, who am I? And trustworthiness answers the question, am I safe? And every child is entitled to that. 
and, and, and obviously there's violations of those that happen through our life that cascade to really kind of lead to uh, behaviors that have been adaptive for us. Um, but I love what you're saying because I think it's that relentless way of approaching a, a, a young person to say there could be violations of love and trust but guess what I'm going to show up today I'm going to show up tomorrow I'm going to keep showing up until you feel that breakthrough and that's often what's required when you eat when you have those that those traumatic experiences uh, and that that actually makes a lot of sense but I think it's hard when you're in that moment with that kid to hold on to that hope that change is going to happen as you know, and, and sometimes obviously we need multiple people involved, but I, I really like that idea a lot. It is really hard. And, and I think sometimes working in communities too, where you, where communities have often consistently been taken advantage of by researchers, by the medical institution, by politicians, and are continuing to be taken advantage of, marginalized and oppressed, then you also are, are in a place where the, you, you have to establish that you're trustworthy. And, and you may, not be trustworthy. You you may have priorities and values that are different than the people that you work with. So how I might choose to spend the money from a grant accommodates the need for research, the need for me to be publishing results, and is not how how somebody in the community would be spending that money. And so I got a little bit tangential, but going back to the main point, I think as somebody who works in communities, it's also important to prove that you care about the communities and that you are are trustworthy by being honest and clear about what you're going to be doing and why, and that you've continued to stay true to that and still recognizing that you as an individual might be losing hope when you see the scope of the problem. You're working with communities that vary in how much hope they have given history and um, current events. And that, that part, of, part of what we do is showing up every day, even when we're not sure what the outcome of that is going to be. There's so much there, Krista, that I would dive into. And I also know your work is so expansive. You're, you're doing some really cool work around, but really this community participatory action research. And for some listeners, they may not know exactly what that is. And so I, uh, in a moment, I want you to kind of give that conversation. But I want to make a connection here, I think, too, from, from you know, kind of the progress of your work to where we are now is this idea that we have to, we have to approach people with a sense of uh, dignity and being able to really uh, see them for their potential, understanding that uh, aggressive behavior, that bringing that it's both being able to decrease those things and increase the prosociality. And I think this makes your research really interesting in the fact of what we're going to talk about next in this this uh, uh, grant that came from John Templeton Foundation is moving from a place of kind of a deficit model of of youth and young people to seeing the character virtues and values that communities have and being able to hold those up. Because as you mentioned earlier, research has done a pretty good job of going into communities and then telling a story of deficit for that community. And I know a big part of your mission and your purpose has been to engage the community in a way to, to even define what character and values mean for them, and then helping really uh, not come up with the answers to that, but really facilitating solutions that are from the community. And I think this is a really beautiful thing. So I would love for you to talk a little bit about, one, your what community participatory action research really is, so people can get a, a general idea of that, and then move into this really this really cool work you're doing uh, with the John Templeton Foundation uh, grant uh, around character and character virtues. Community-based uh, participatory research or participatory action research is based on the idea of, of using research as a as a tool to help communities move towards their goals and values. So from the beginning, you're working 
with a community to identify what they see the problems are, what their goals and values are, what the existing strengths are, and then um, together kind of putting together how are we going to go about addressing this and, and how are we going about seeing whether or not that worked. So that hopefully you're, you end up designing intervention or project or program that is uh, ecologically valid in the sense of we have a good idea that this is going to work in the context that it was made for, that it's something that is attractive to the end user communities, that it's something that is going to be sustainable over time, and it's something that's going to be scalable and can impact other similar communities as well. So it kind of is a a flip on the normal prevention science model where you do a lot of the things in research-controlled environments and then try to make sure that it's feasible and acceptable and sustainable and scalable, but instead you're working with the end users from the beginning. And it's also a, a way to hopefully elevate people's voices to give them a little bit of control over the process and make sure that what we're doing is something that is wanted and is good for the intended end users. It just makes so much intuitive sense too, right? Like all of us, if we think about it, like if someone can't, if people could tell me all day, then you need to eat healthy or you need to go exercise. Well, often it's like you telling me it doesn't give me my own autonomy to figure this out or have motivation. But I think often that's a challenge, right? As we have the researchers who might discover knowledge and think, well, I'm just going to tell people the way. And 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 this approach really is actually a partnership. And, and it's a kind of a way to engage. Talk a little bit about how this is, has, uh, well, one, uh, who you're working with there and uh, mobile Alabama and what's um, kind of where what this intervention is doing and a little bit of background there. I'll lose all my credibility if I don't say it's Mobile oh, Alabama. Sorry. Mobile, yes, yes. No, it, my, it's a tough one coming in. <laughs> my West Coast ways is, are just not very good there, so thank you for that. <laughs> you're welcome. And. This is a participatory action research project. Our community leader is Marie Chastain, who's uh, the director of community engagement at United Methodist Inner City Mission here. She also has more titles that she is a director of. And she, she's been working with youth in the community for probably more years than I've been alive, I would guess. She's amazing. She knows everybody, it seems like, and she is really well-respected. I also have a um, colleague on the research side who is a philosopher, Anne Jeffrey, and she's, so it's, it's been interesting to really try to put together how do I think about this as a youth development interventionist? How does philosophy think about this from virtue development? How, how does the community leadership think about this in terms of what will be what will actually work here. And then also my colleague, Joe Courier, who is also a clinical psychologist with a specialty in spirituality. So thinking about how, how can we tap into big values here? Big values are is what we call transcendent meaning for our youth. And, and, and actually, I love that. It's really what, what they call it, right? The big values. They, they made... And I think that's really, really cool. It's like they came up with what character meant to them. And one of them is this big values or this connection to something bigger than yourself. Yes. And everything is so much more poetic than what we could have come up with <laughs> by our, on our own. So the definition that they came up with for big values is something bigger than what you can see that helps you hold on to who you can be. Oh, and it's I love like, that. Yes. It's, and it, I feel like that across the board, everything has turned out a hundred times better than what I could have done if I was just sitting in my office trying to make stuff up and probably has taken a lot longer and required a lot more conversations with a lot more people, but in the end has this vibrancy to it that feels lovely to me. Yeah. Yeah. Tell me more about that kind of the process of what are some of the activities that you're doing and then other 
character uh, virtues and strengths that really emerged that were important and and if and defining them I want to hear more now <laughs> so we've had a series of community advisory board meetings which mostly involves um, leaders in the community who work with youth or who are faith leaders we've had several parent focus groups around this area and Probably our biggest input has been the monthly meetings with our youth advisory board and um, the regular meetings with the teachers at the after-school sites that we've been working with, who've helped a lot with kind of being able to put things together in a way that the youth will be able to respond to. Also, we've the other virtues that we've focused on have been hope, peace, wisdom, and forgiveness, and all related to. Um, kind of all linked back to big values in terms of throughout the process, thinking about the future and decision-making. What are your big values here? What do you want to be moving towards? With hope, the definition that we came up with was seeing the future you want and moving to make it come true, which I've, I've also loved too. There was one story one of our community advisory board members came up with with that. She said, Having hope is like driving through a storm. So um, in Mobile, we have tons of rainfall. I think we get more rain than any other city in the United States. And she said, you keep driving because even though you can't see it, you know somewhere up ahead there is a place without clouds. And, And hope is being able to move through that storm with the conviction that there's something better up ahead. Another advisory board member talked about it uh, specifically related to his relationship with youth and said some of these children have only been in a concrete building all of their lives. And you can say, come out, come out, like there's sunshine here, but they don't even know what sunshine looks like. So why are they going to move towards that? So first you have to show them the sunshine and then you can help them move towards it. And so the hope has been, as we've been talking to people, really fundamental in how, how our community leaders think about getting children to a place where they can be inspired think about their lives in bigger ways. Yeah, what a powerful image that that is to think about like uh, to really know what what sunshine is or what is that what is that that thing that you're moving through or driving through to get to the other side of the storm. And I can imagine for a lot of the youth too, they the messages and their environment and and the way that as a society we have created these oppressive systems for many of these kids that the odds are stacked against them already and to be able to hold on to hope. I was struck by that when I met Maria. I, I got a chance to meet Maria and and really just in the time I was with her, she she just had that ability to make an impact on you right there. So I can't imagine all the amazing work she's doing with the youth. And she had that sense of hope and she was able to really, uh, what are some of the key ingredients to that? What are, is, is there other things that are emerging on what feeds that hope? What is some of the things that help people uh, uh, really create a hopeful future? I think there has been this idea of adults kind of seeing the spark inside of youth and calling it out and making it grow. So a lot of the people who we've been talking to have really emphasized the adult role in nurturing and inspiring in showing what are the possibilities and in and in what you talked about before with being consistent, showing up and being there and reinvesting. And so there is that idea of that seeing the potential in a child and calling it out as the adult role and children being able to have the opportunities to learn what they're good at and to practice those things and to be encouraged in those things and to be in a in a place where there's more than just worrying about having food on the table and paying bills that there's a, a place for creativity and exploration and that it's the community's job it's our job to make sure that there's more than just scarcity and then also um, a lot of people talk about what what are you hoping in so a lot of people 
talk about the divine in our communities, that there, there is a confidence in the divine, that there's a confidence in the good, even if you never see it. And I think that's been really profound to me as somebody who sometimes struggles with her levels of hope, that so many of the older adults who I've talked to have no belief that things are going to change in their lifetime. That's not the thing that they're looking forward to, but they are confident that things will change in their grandchildren's lives or in their great-grandchildren's lives. And so that sense of the generational change is, is, has been really strong in what we're hearing. And it's beautiful. And then the, I think the other big source of hope that people have talked about is community. Just a belief that you're part of a community that's there for you and that you can feed into that hope too by being part of a community and being there for your community also. Yeah. And that, I mean, also again, I feel like such a great opportunity for practitioners and doers to hear is, is just thinking about how do we want to see the potential and take time to see the spark and, and recognize that, that once we see that spark, if we can just expand it, if we can just fan that flame, then and, and really be able to, to, uh, to see the hope of the future in this generation too, that really is a beautiful way to think about it. Yes, and I actually have been told by people, so, so it was interesting because in, in these stories we're hearing adults say of youth, you need to see the spark and you need to call it. And one time, my barber actually, I think I was expressing frustration to him about how a project was going or difficulties that were coming up. And he was like, you need to hold on to that fire inside of you. And so there's, there again, pointing to that developmental piece of it and thinking of ourselves in that line of generations need to be encouraged and need that some incubation of the fire potentially yeah that's i love that so with the project too krista as you've kind of met with these different multi-level groups of saying what are these character uh, virtues what do they mean and getting people on the same page of mean what's the next step what's the next step for you uh with that work that is a great question and it feels like there are so many next steps i think for us One thing that I have, one new project that we're starting is also a participatory action research project, and it's specifically around gun injury prevention. And and lots of times we think of of violence as a a spectrum of behavior where the low end is like pushing, shoving, and then at the more extreme end is is acts that result in death. And and the, the, currently the guns are used in about 80 or 90 percent of the homicides of young black men in in the United States. And so for me, kind of thinking, continuing across the lifespan, what can we be doing that gives youth the chance to meet their full potential? And so thinking of what do those interventions look like in all the different settings. So with, um, in schools, in after school sites, with police officers, with other community stakeholders, with public health messaging and interventions and thinking about how, how can we weave this net together to increase the likelihood that youth are going to have a chance to thrive. And so that is a really vague answer to the what comes next question. But I think continuing to constantly revise the interventions that we're doing, innovate around interventions, and test them to see how they're working and see how we can do more. And providing real solutions to, to the needs of the community. I read about this grant, which, you know, I just think is important to say, like, it's a big deal that you got this grant to do this from the CDC. And because um, and, and really this uh, gun injury prevention. Right. Which is uh, really kind of a, a cool approach to it. So I look forward to hearing more about that. And, and I know people can read about it. You know, the it's it, did I read that it's called GRIP? That's the project. Yeah, GRIP, GRIP project. Yeah. Gun-related injury prevention. And yes, it's, we're online. We welcome people to come look at us. We are, we're really, again, taking a community participatory action research approach. So we're, 
what we're hoping to do is kind of really understand people's attitudes and behaviors and practices around guns so that we can design prevention and intervention strategies that are going to be maximally effective and, and consistent, uh, not at least contradictory to the way that people are living their lives. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah, and ultimately save lives. <laughs> yes, right? yes, is, and hopefully yeah. save lives. Yeah, I am a big fan of yours, Krista. I love what you're, I think it's so important. One of the things that also strikes me is, is, from the beginning of thinking about giving voice and helping kids understand that they matter and seeing their potential and really moving to a different way of engaging the community, particular communities of color, particular communities that have been historically marginalized, and to hold up the virtues and the values because we know not much research has been done around not just surviving or, or, or even resilience, but what does it mean? What are the virtues and the values of the, and, and the amazing things, assets within communities that we know that that, that has you hearing from at the bar, at, when you go to the barber, here's you say, well, hold on to that fire to to the beautiful way that, that, that the young uh, kids and your advisory uh, have defined hope and have, to, I mean, like, that's really exciting work. So I, I want to end this way because I think it's really it's really a, a good way to end. And I know it puts a little pressure on you to think of these things uh, uh, right off the bat. But if you're going to give kind of based on all the work you've done and who you are and you were to give a practitioner, a teacher, a coach, uh, after school um, staff, uh, a couple pieces of advice based on the work they do and what you found. What are some things that you would you would say? What are some things that you would uh, kind of highlight? That is a great question. I think the main thing I would say is start out with the assumption that this child is doing the best they can. And if the best that, that they can do right now isn't good enough, then think about what we can change about what's going around, around about on around them so that they can do better. And just kind of starting with that baseline assumption that this child is doing the best that they can right now is, is probably the main take home message that I would give. Yeah, I love that. I love that. Well, we'll end with that piece of advice. And thank you so much for your time, Krista. And we look forward to following you and your work. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening. I want to thank our guest, Dr. Krista Mahari, for appearing on the show as well as our support staff who made this podcast happen. This podcast was also made possible through the support of a grant from the John Templeton Foundation and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. The opinions expressed here are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views of the John Templeton Foundation nor the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Tune in next time when we'll be talking to Dr. Ashley Willens about ways that we can become more rich with our time and spend more time with those things that bring us the most meaning in our lives. We also discuss the power of a generosity intervention for young people in sports. I can't wait for you to hear the next episode. If you have the chance, we'd love it if you could review the show wherever you get your podcasts. Reviews are one of the best ways for others to find out about the show. On behalf of everyone at Search Institute, thank you so much, and we'll see you next time.